Well, good morning, everybody. I sure hope you're having a good weekend. If you're not having a good weekend, then you don't care about your teams. Uh, have you noticed what the Mariners just did yesterday? Anybody? Uh, that made a few people happy, evidently. Uh, your baseball team is still in the playoffs. In fact, they won and the first wild card series here. So that's pretty significant up here in this area, and especially when they were behind 8-1 to one in the game yesterday. So to set a record for a team coming back in the playoffs and actually win, incredible. Did you notice what the Beavers did? They did pretty good too. How about the Ducks? They did pretty good also. I feel like I'm in great company. This, this whole thing we're going to do today can't go wrong because you're all pumped up already, I think. I don't know. I, ho I hope you are, but I'm sure glad to have the opportunity to come back and to complete our walkthrough experience that we started back on February 6th. I don't know if you were here. Anybody here that was here on February 6th? A few people, okay? Just so nobody feels left out, if you weren't here on February 6th, just raise your hand, okay? All right, good. It's like half and half kind of thing. And that's great. So what we did back on February 6th was we gave you a, a storyline of the Old Testament. We, we taught it in such a way that hopefully you remember it. I'm not going to go through it right now, just in case you don't remember it, <laughs> okay? But we gave you 40 major people, places, and events it took you all the way from the beginning, in the beginning, the book of Genesis, all the way through the book of Malachi. So the 39 books of the Old Testament. And we had a great time doing that. And by the end of the day, you were able to actually go through the entire storyline in probably less than two minutes. So today what we're going to do is we're going to give you the storyline of the New Testament and hopefully you can, if you want to go back and do a little review of the Old Testament, you can pick it up and continue all the way through the entire story of the Bible. And by the way, I'm sure you know this, but the Bible is more than just a lot of stories. It's filled with stories, isn't it? It's also a story. It's this, the life-giving story. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of salvation. It's the story of God's love and his desire to have a relationship with us now and for all eternity. And so today we're going to focus on the New Testament. We're actually going to back up a little bit, though, because we're going to begin uh, at the point there where Malachi ends and there's a gap between the Old and the New Testament. And I hope that we can do this in such a way that it really does help you. And it really is something memorable. And it's something that you can share. And if you have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or whoever, you could share it with them. In fact, we have the children today learning the same storyline. And so at the end of our time together, we're going to share together the experience of saying what they learned with them because we will have learned the same thing, uh, just slower. They learn faster, if you know what I mean. But that aside, we're going to Go down this road uh, this morning, just get you started, and then the afternoon. And if you can only stay for right now, thank you for being here this morning. 
you don't need to come back if you got, you know, four other things going and type of thing. And so, but you still can benefit. And that's why we're going to, you know, share together an experience here that I hope will get you started in your storyline. And for those of us that are going to be able to come back this afternoon, we're going to complete this storyline all the way through the entire New Testament. My first experience with Walk Through the Bible Ministries is back in the 1970s. So this ministry has been around since, so oh, about 75, right around there when Bruce Wilkinson, maybe you've heard that name before, he was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he had an assignment. It was teach the Bible in a memorable way. And so he began to teach the storyline of the Old and the New Testament, put it all together. He put it on pictures and put a bunch of pictures up in the classroom. And as he taught this to his teacher and the other students, uh, it caught on. It really did. And what happened was it began to be something that people were requesting that Bruce do at other places. And so he continued to teach this seminar. It kept morphing and developing and so forth. And it's still around today. In fact, it's around the entire world now. And so people all around the world, and we'll show you a video this afternoon, uh, are learning the storyline in such a way that it's helping them. So in some ways, I think of this like uh, my experience over the last eight months with YouTube videos. Do you ever use YouTube videos to help you learn something that you don't know how to do, but maybe there's a video out there that could show you what to do? Well, I've been using a lot of videos as we've been doing some remodeling in our barn. My wife and I live in a barn now, finally got to the barn after all these years. Been married for over 45 years, and now we're in a barn. But anyway, so we were living downstairs as our daughter and husband and a couple of their kids are upstairs. Three of them didn't come upstairs. They lived somewhere else during this nine months' time. But they lived upstairs, and then they finally moved out. Actually, they are about 100 yards away on the same property, all of our families together in Merced, California, we have three children, 11 grandchildren now. Our three children are married, and so we never anticipated that we would be doing what we are, which is living on a small city farm. We've got 25 chickens, four goats, three rabbits, and I could keep on going, but you get the idea, and it's a flower farm. They're growing flowers and having some fun with that, and we're really having a great time together. But the upstairs needed to be remodeled. And so I was told by my kids who understand YouTube better than me because they consulted for everything. So I was told by them, Dad, you could probably sort some of these things out and do it yourself in terms of the remodel by just looking at some YouTube videos so I started looking at some YouTube videos, and you know what? We actually got the whole upstairs remodeled this last eight months, and it was fun at times and other times frustrating, but nonetheless, you could always look at another YouTube video. It was there. It was kind of a coach. Well, in a sense, for me, when I first started reading the Bible, I didn't have a clue. I don't know about you, but I never was able to really put the whole thing together. I mean, I could get a story or two here and there and that sort of thing, and the living translation of the Bible helped me a lot because I wasn't trying to figure out the these and thous and all the rest of that that were in my Schofield Bible. 
And it really, it really helped me to go to a seminar like this. So you, a walk through the Bible seminar, it kind of put it all together for me in a way that I could understand it. And I got to say that since I went to that seminar back in the 70s, I have continued to benefit from what I learned way back then and what I continue to learn even now. And with regard to the New Testament, I'm sure you've got a lot of learnings, but what would be fun would be to be able to take those learnings and put them all together now into a storyline so that you could actually story God's story from beginning to end in just a few minutes. So today we're going to teach you the New Testament in under two minutes. Well, it's going to take longer than two minutes to teach it to you. But you, Lord willing, at the end of our time together, be able to go through the entire New Testament in under two minutes with the storyline. So where are we going? Well, take out your Bible if you've got it with you and or, uh, you know, uh, your, your uh, pad you got there, whatever you got, and uh, go to the table of contents. Here's something we usually don't spend much time in, the table of contents in our Bible. If uh, you didn't bring along your Bible, just take out that message note sheet. If you didn't get a, a message note sheet when you came in, I think we've got a whole bunch back there on that table. But there's a chart that's there in that, uh, that message note sheet that I think we could benefit from. It looks like this. And this really is just a simple way to understand the New Testament. The New Testament, if you're at the table of contents, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's how it begins. We call those the books of history. There are five books of history. And then, as you continue to read along, we've got books that are written to several churches. So you've got the church at Rome, and you've got the church at Corinth, and the church at Galatia, and the church at Ephesus, and Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. And there are nine of these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to these churches. We call them epistles, the epistles to these churches, the letters to these churches. It's, by the way... Some people have got this confused with uh, the wife of an apostle. That's not what an epistle is, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's a letter. And these are letters that Paul wrote. And from after you read through these nine letters, you come to four more letters that Paul wrote. He wrote to some pastors or individuals. We've got Timothy and Titus, First and Second Timothy, and Titus and Philemon. And then you have the general epistles, and there are nine letters there. So you've got nine letters here, four letters here, nine letters here, five books of history here. So how many books total do we have in the New Testament? Yeah, that's correct, 27. 27. Now, I helped you with this back in February, but you probably forgot. How many books are there in the Old Testament? 39, yeah. And so how many are there in the New Testament? 27, so how many, you know, it's a math question early in the morning, but how many are there in the whole Bible? 66, okay, so you got that. And if you can't remember, you just count the letters in old, 1, 2, 3, O-L-D, and Testament, there are nine there, then you remember in the Old Testament, there are three and nine, 39 books in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are 27, you say, how do you get that out of three and nine? Well, you got to go three times nine, and that's 27, 
Okay, so now we've got the number of books that we found in the Old Testament and the New Testament out of the entire Bible, and these general epistles over here are written by different people to different people. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We can guess on that one, but nobody's really sure. But we do know who wrote uh, Timothy. Well, James. James wrote James, and then we know who wrote uh, First and Second Peter, Peter, and First, Second, and Third John, and Jude. And Revelation, John wrote the book of Revelation. So there you just got a simple structure of the New Testament. How are they arranged? Well, the books of history come first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Uh, First four tell us about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the storyline told from different perspectives. And then you have the book of Acts, which is the book of the early church, and the founding of the church, the start of the church, and the spread of the church. And then Paul's letters, how are Paul's letters organized? Are they organized chronologically? The answer to that is no. How are they organized? Well, the first nine are uh, organized from the longest to the shortest, and the next four are organized from the longest to the shortest. So in terms of the amount of words that are in these books. You come after the book of Acts to Romans. Romans is the longest uh, letter that Paul wrote. And you can work on your way all the way down there in those books to the churches to the shortest letter, 2 Thessalonians, and the same thing with 1 Timothy through Philemon. And these other letters are written by different people to different people for different reasons, the general epistles. Well, in knowing that then, we could work with these books, but these books come after a gap of time from the Old Testament. There's actually a gap of time between Malachi and Matthew. And we actually talked about this at the uh, end of our Old Testament seminar when we called this period of time 400 years silence, we said. 400 years silence, and then came Christ. We talked about. What's interesting, if you want to look at that 400-year period of time, this was an intentional uh, plan on God's part. He always does things in his time, right? Some of us struggle with his time because it doesn't always match up with our time, or should we say (laughs) it seems like it seldom matches up with our time. But there's this 400-year period of time before the New Testament story that tells us that in the fullness of time, this way in Colossians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So Jesus did not come into the world immediately after the end of history found in the book of Malachi. But there is a 400-year period of time, we call it silence or a time of waiting. There are no prophets that declared God's word during this time. God didn't show up in clouds or burning bushes during this time. It was just a time of waiting. But in the midst of the waiting, God was working. And he was working through the empires that came to be in this period, which is fascinating because If you go back into the history and the storyline that we worked through at the end of the Old Testament, we talked about how Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom, they either lost their lives or they scattered throughout 
all of the areas in that area, all around that area. And they intermarried during that time, and this is where a whole new race of people began called the Samaritan race. The reason that you don't read about the Samaritan race in the Old Testament is because it wasn't around until what transpired during this 400-year period, excuse me, during this, during this period of time in Assyria there. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Assyria comes in, they're the world power who are ultimately conquered by Babylonia, who conquered the, the southern kingdom and actually took the Jewish people into exile, if you may recall that, over at Babylon. But ultimately, Persia, Medo-Persia, came in and conquered Babylonia. You probably know a little bit of that story. You know about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what happened during that Babylonian period. And then you know about Queen Esther and how Esther was in this role as the queen for such a time as this, when possibly everything was going south for the Jews. Well, after all of that transpired, Greece came in. Alexander the Great, you've heard that name before. And Alexander the Great led the charge in Hellenizing that world, which was to bring Greek culture onto that world in terms of culture and, and language, religion, you name it. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes followed Alexander, and he wanted to rid the world of Jewish religion. He even sacrificed pigs on the altar, which was obviously a sacrilege to the whole thing. And you say, how did God use Greece during this period of time to prepare the way for the coming of Christ? We know that there was a time of independence that fell during these 400 years where the Jewish people during the Maccabee, the Maccabean period of time were able to push back and enjoy some freedom during that period. You may recall that. There was a, a Maccabee called Judas Maccabee. It was kind of the Rambo of the day who led the charge in getting the independence that the Jews were after. But it was an intense time of persecution there for about a hundred years. And ultimately, the Hasmonean dynasty, as it was called, fell to Rome. And Rome became the world power so that when the Old Testament ends, Persia is the world power. But when we begin the New Testament, Rome is now the world power. And this has followed Pompey, who came in and slaughtered 12,000 Jews. And that changed things. So things have really changed over this 400-year period of time. And you say, well, how in the world was that part of God's plan in the sense of preparing the world for the coming of Jesus? Well, God took what Greece had done, and through their work, there was now a common language in the world. You want to guess what the language was? <laughs> yeah, it was Greek. So that... When the gospel was to come in the fullness of time, there was going to be a way by which that gospel could be heard by all nations because of that common language. And during that period of independence that Israel enjoyed in the midst of the persecution, there was a growing longing for that Messiah that God had promised to them. A growing longing and intensity for the coming of the Messiah. Their hopes increased 
that there would be, in their minds, a political Messiah that would deliver them from the hardship and pain and persecution that they were experiencing during those years. And as far as Rome is concerned, I mean, Rome was concerned about domination, and one of the ways that they did that was through warring against other peoples and nations. And one of the things that they did during this period of time was they built roads throughout the world. And it's interesting because this is all part of the preparations. In fact, one of the things that we want to help you with is just by reminding you that God in the fullness of time brought Christ into a world that now had a common language, it had greater hopes for the coming of the Messiah, and it also had roads by which the gospel could spread to all peoples. So in our little walkthrough story that we're going to give you today, we want to actually back up and remind ourselves that God brought into the world uh, very important preparations, first through Greece, and we're going to do a little Greek pose here and uh, just say Greece to remind us of how they brought a common language into the world. We're going to point to our mouth and say language. So try this with me just to remember what it was we just talked about. We're going to talk, we're going to remember Greece, and we're just going to say Greece like this, Greece, language, and then we're going to put a little yarmulke on the back of our heads and say Israel, Israel, a yarmulke here, and we're going to point to the heavens and say hopes, hopes. So this is who? Israel, this will be hopes. This is who? Greece, this is language, this is Israel, this is hopes, and this is a Roman salute, so we'll say Rome, and we're going to say roads, okay, and the paving of roads, so it would be Rome, roads. Now, what we just gave you right there, very simple, is six words that summarize essentially three ways that God worked during that 400-year period of time to make final preparations for the coming of Christ into the world, and all three of these matters uh, were of great importance in Jesus' coming. So let's say them again. So we have Greece, language, Israel, hopes, Rome, roads. Good. Now, into that world came Jesus Christ. And this is so wonderful to realize, but also into this world, as you can see on this chart, uh, we've got things that weren't there at the end of the Old Testament. Now, there's a universal language. There's an intense hope for Jesus' coming, and there is a network of roads. The result in the first century was that there was an ease of communication of getting the gospel out into the world. There were growing expectations of the king, of the Savior, of Jesus and his kingdom, the Messiah, and there was now an efficiency of travel throughout the world. All of a sudden, they're able to move their troops around to wherever Rome wanted to place their troops. Well, when the Apostle Paul and others came along and the gospel set, spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and from there to the othermost parts of the earth, wow, all of a sudden the gospel can go to all of these places rather easily. If you want, comparatively speaking, we would say not and the way it is today. In fact, you talk about the 21st century, here we are now living in a time where God has placed us. Isn't it amazing that you and I are living in this time? 
I mean, have you ever asked yourself with purpose, what is it, Lord? Why, why now? And obviously, God works in his time to accomplish all of his purposes, but part of his purposes in this time is for us to be here and to be used by him in a world where now it's possible to communicate with the world in a, in a moment. We could go everywhere and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. There still is a spiritual interest out there. I mean, it seems to change and, you know, morph and it, it looks so different all the time, even now coming out of COVID if we are not. But as we see what's happening in people's lives, there seems to be a real interest in spiritual things even now. And so we're living in a time where there are doors that are still open to talk about Christ. I have a friend who, who during COVID began to walk with a couple of neighbors that he didn't know until COVID came. And he started to walk with these neighbors, got to know them. One lived three houses down. He didn't know that neighbor. Another one lived a block or so away, didn't know that neighbor either. But they saw each other walking, and they decided, well, we'll walk, you know, together. I mean, we've got nothing else to do right now. These are older people. And so they started walking on a regular basis. And my friend, who wanted to help these people if they didn't know Jesus Christ, he began to talk about Christ. In fact, he said, I got this little booklet that I like to read. It's called The Daily Bread. Have you ever heard of it? They hadn't heard of it. You ever heard of The Daily Bread? Yeah, many of you might actually read from this. And, and so he started to read this to them whenever they walked. He said, would you mind if I just read this? It's been helpful for me. And they said, sure. Three months after doing that on a regular basis, he read a reading that had to do with salvation. At the end of the walk, he said, have you come to the place in your lives where you would know for sure that if you were to die today and stand before God and he said to you, why should I let you into heaven what would you say? Many of us have heard that question before. He asked a question to just find out where these people were at in terms of coming to a, receiving Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, into their lives. And you know what? Both of them did. At the end of that walk, in the midst of COVID, because he reached out, and there were people in his neighborhood that have spiritual interests kind of thing is still happening. Worldwide travel, well, we see that all the time, don't we? We're, we're living in a world now where God wants to use us, and he wants to use us in ways that spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel begins with the birth, the birth of Christ. And so as we, we move from the intertestamental period there, from that 400-year period of time, uh, from focusing on Greece and Israel and Rome, we focus now on Jesus Christ when we come to the gospel accounts, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we talk about how Jesus was born. And where was he born? He was born where? Go ahead, say it. Bethlehem, okay. Yeah, Bethlehem. Just making sure that we're all on the same page here. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, you can see Bethlehem's number 13 here on our chart. We're going to give this to you in your notebook this afternoon. But really, he was born in a time 
where people in that promised land area back in the beginning of uh, Abraham's time, it was called the land of Canaan, you'll remember. And, and this land really isn't too complicated to understand, but it's really uh, helpful to have a sense of where things happened at. And, and so one of the things that we're going to do today is we're just going to say, let's, let's help ourselves by saying there's the Sea of Galilee's right here. Then we could begin to picture where things happened at. So if this is the Sea of Galilee, coming out of the Sea of Galilee is a river. What's this river called? The Jordan River. Yeah. And the Jordan River flows into a body of water back there. You're all sitting in that area. What's that body of water called? The Dead Sea. Okay, so we got three bodies of water. By the way, in terms of direction here, I'm not sure what our directions are in this building, but just for the sake of this promised land, let's just say that this is north, okay? So this is north. What will this be? South. Okay, good. What's this? Yeah, let's make it west. <laughs> All right, and this will be east. Okay. So what we've got as we go here is we've got the Sea of Galilee in the north, We've got the water running from the north to the south into the Dead Sea. The water goes into the Dead Sea, but it doesn't come out. It's part of the reason it's called dead, stagnant. Now, over here is a larger body of water. All those halfway over on that side, do this, would you? These are the waves of the Mediterranean over here, okay? The Mediterranean Sea right over there. And between the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, are three land areas. Three land areas. Are you with me so far? There's a land area right here next to the Sea of Galilee. What's this land area called? Galilee. Yeah, that would make sense, right? Sea of Galilee, Galilee. Okay, I got that. All right, let's go back here by the Dead Sea. There's a land area over here by the Dead Sea, right in this area here between the Dead Sea and... Uh, the Mediterranean. What's this land area called? Dead, yeah, but Judea, okay? This is Judea back here, all right? So you got two land areas, two of the four key regions or land areas that we've got up there. We've got Galilee. We've got Judea. Now, be careful here. And we have some area between, and we call it Samaria. Okay, you got that? Come on, you guys got to have a little bit of humor at this hour in the morning, don't you? So you got uh, Galilee. What's the middle land area? Samaria. What's that one? Judea. Okay, good. And there's a fourth land area over here. It's called Perea. Perea. P-E-R-E-A. Okay? And Perea is this wilderness area. It's also an area where Jesus spent pretty much the entire six months, the last six months of his three-and-a-half-year ministry over here, focusing on matters like counting the cost and other things like that. So we got four land areas. we got four bodies of water, four land areas. we got five key cities, five key cities. There's a city that caps off the Sea of Galilee. It's called Capernaum, okay, Capernaum right here. There is a city here in Galilee where Jesus grew up. What's that called? Nazareth. So we got, what's this city over here? Capernaum. What's this? Nazareth. We got Samaria here. There's a city here where Jesus met this woman at the well. What was this city called? Sychar. Good. 
And then we've got Judea down here, Judea. We come to the holy city down here first. What's the holy city called? Jerusalem, good. Would you like to be the holy city? We could point at you and you feel holy, don't you, please? Not, not. <laughs> All right, somewhere in this area, the holy city. And then six miles south of the holy city is the city where Jesus was born. What's that? Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised anointed one, he would be born in Bethlehem. And so when we think about Jesus' birth, we want to remember that he was born in the exact location that God said he would be born. I mean, obviously, that's a huge clue, isn't it? Pay attention. <laughs> this is the Christ. So we're just going to remember Jesus' birth by saying birth, like that, birth. Try that with me. We'll say birth. There's a place there on your notes. If you want to write that down, you certainly can. After Jesus was born, we talk about his childhood. We're not going to include that in our walkthrough, but there's certainly a lot of, a little, I shouldn't say a lot, there's some very important information about his childhood, especially around 12 years of age when they left Nazareth and they went to Jerusalem. They went up to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And, and then after they were there for the Passover and the family, Mary and Joseph, started back, they got three days on their journey back, and they said, well, Jesus isn't here. Do you remember this? And so they went back, and they found him where? In the temple. Yeah. So all of this you can begin to see. And by the way, it's always interesting because they say they go up to Jerusalem. Well, just in terms of our directions, you would say, that doesn't make sense because, I mean, I came up to Portland from Merced. That makes sense, right? Because it's north. But we're not talking about direction. We're talking about elevation. Jerusalem sits at 2,600 square, uh, square feet. Not, elevation, 2,600 elevation. So whenever you went to Jerusalem, you always went up. And if you came from Jerusalem from the Dead Sea, you were really going up because the Dead Sea is 1,300 below sea level. So that would be a big journey, wouldn't it? So what am I saying? I'm just saying this is a very real country, and these are very real cities and very real areas that Jesus ministered in once his ministry began. And when did that ministry begin? Well, it began with what? A baptism. Do you remember that? We have birth. And then we're going to jump over these childhood years. We're going to start with Jesus' baptism, where we're just going to say, uh, baptized by John. Excuse me, we're not going to say that. We're going to say something different in this seminar. There are two seminars that we teach, and one of them has more information than, than the other one. Uh, no, we are going to say baptized by John. So, what we're going to do here is we're going to say birth, and then we're going to say baptized by John by bringing the Holy Spirit down on Jesus because when John baptized Jesus, remember this? The Holy Spirit came on him to empower him for the ministry that God had for him, and the heavenly, our Heavenly Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I'll tell you, right away, you know there's something unique and different about Jesus. In fact, John saw it. He questioned it at one point, but nonetheless, he finally got it. 
And I think that when you see that Jesus was baptized publicly as an announcement of who he was, we get a little sense of why God wants us to be baptized publicly as an announcement of our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the new life that is in ours. So it's a wonderful testimony here at the outset of this ministry that we certainly don't want to forget. So we have birth, we have baptized by John, we have tempted by who? Satan. Yeah, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as well. Jesus is tempted by Satan. How was he tempted? Well, Satan wanted him to ultimately uh, abandon God's plan. And how did Jesus resist those temptations? Through the quoting of Scripture. And where did that Scripture come from? Three passages out of the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus went right back to Scripture and said, nope, you don't have it correct. This is truth. And of course, if we're going to stand against the errors of the world and the evil one, we've got to be people who understand Scripture, apply it, especially in times of temptation as Jesus did. So we've got birth. We've got baptized by John. We have tempted by Satan. Now after that, Jesus came back, he began his ministry, he began his ministry in and around Nazareth and Capernaum there, he called his first followers, he did his first miracle at Cana of Galilee, remember that, Galilee right here, uh, what was that miracle, he turned water into wine, you remember, yeah, this is an amazing story, uh, but also Jesus went on down to Jerusalem, in that direction, I'll say, down in that sense. And while he was down there, he had a conversation uh, with a guy named Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus? And how Nicodemus wanted to know for sure what he had to do to have eternal life. Now, that's an important question. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand that. How can a person be born again? He was talking physical birth, and Jesus was talking what? Spiritual birth. He was talking about a second birth. And so we're going to remember that. We're just going to say second birth and remember this very important conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, a religious person who knew the law, but he had yet uh, to come to understand that salvation is a gift from God. And it's not something that you can earn or deserve, but it's something that God gives. And he gives it through his beloved son, Jesus Christ, hear him. And what's interesting is that shortly after this, Jesus took a walk in this direction, which is what? So he's down in Jerusalem. He took a walk in this direction, which is north. And he came to Samaria. Intentionally, he came to Samaria. And you know why he came to Samaria? Because he had some divine appointments there. And when he got there, he had a conversation with a woman at a well, at Jacob's well, at Sychar's well. He had a conversation while the disciples had gone into town to get some food. He had a conversation with a woman which you say, well, that's no big deal, but it was a big deal at that time, and that's why when the disciples came back and they saw him having a conversation with this woman, they were shocked. Are you kidding? 
what's going on here? I mean, first of all, they were shocked by the fact that he was actually taking a route through Samaria because the Jews didn't walk through Samaria. They walked around Samaria. Otherwise, they would be polluted by the Samaritans. So they went on the other side of the Jordan River over here in the Perea area and walked around Samaria. But Jesus intentionally went there for some divine appointments. And one of those appointments was with a woman. And so when they came back and they saw that he was speaking to a woman, they saw that he was speaking to an immoral woman, and when they saw he was speaking to a Samaritan woman, they were shocked. But Jesus intentionally was showing that the gospel is for all people, all people of all ages, of all ethnicities. And he talked to her about what? Living water. I can give you living water. So we remember the woman at the well by pulling the bucket out of her well and say, woman at the well. Try that with me. This is what? Woman at the well. So what we've got so far is just the beginning of the life of Jesus' ministry where we have first his birth, birth, and then we have baptized by John, tempted by Satan, we're going to say second birth to remember this conversation with Nicodemus. So this will be second birth, and then we have woman at the well. Now, let me just stop there, and let's just talk about this just for a second as we bring things to a close. I think it's fascinating when you look at these two conversations that Jesus had. Um, John chapter 3 is the first conversation. John chapter 4 is the second one. The first one was with the seeker named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. The woman at the well was a sinful woman. She had been married five times, and the guy that she was living with then was not her husband. So she was living with another man, sixth man now, unmarried. You can find these passages in John 3 and 4. One's male, one's female. One's a Jew, the other's a Samaritan. The reputation of Nicodemus was impeccable. The reputation of the woman was immoral. In fact, that's part of the reason, no doubt, that she had to come to the well at the hottest time of the day when nobody else was around, when nobody else would see her. And Jesus made an offer of salvation to Nicodemus, the offer was second birth. You want to have eternal life? You're going to have to be born again. And to the woman, I could give you living water. This water will come from within and it will continue to give you life day after day after day. Her, the barriers to salvation was different. His barrier was pride. He was a a Pharisee, a strict Pharisee, kept the law to the detail, really felt that he had it all together with God. It was on the good side. And the woman, the barrier to her salvation was her past. She knew she was a sinner. What's the lesson here? Well, there are a lot of lessons, but I suppose we could talk about just these two. Could it be that in this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, we are told that we can never be spiritual enough to erase our need for Christ. 
that none of us could ever do enough good things to earn our salvation, that salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that nobody should boast. If we think that salvation comes through our good works, then we don't understand the gospel, and we don't understand our condition. We don't understand that the wages of sin is death. Perhaps we don't understand that we've all sinned, all of us, religious or not, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. It wasn't until my parents began to understand that that their religious experience changed. I grew up in a religious home. They took us to church every Sunday. One Sunday it was Dad's church, the Baptist. The next Sunday it was Mom's church, the Methodist church. And we rotated like that every other Sunday. It was just a religious thing. It didn't impact our homes. It was just something that we did on Sunday to get it done. And it wasn't until they went to what was called a lay institute for Christ that they heard that the gospel isn't something that is the result of your works. It is the result of Christ's work. And they received that gift that their lives began to change and that began to change our home. It was shortly after that that I, as a young person, found Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Such an important lesson. On the other side, with regard to the woman at the well, what can we learn here? Well, we can easily learn we can never be sinful enough, never be sinful enough to erase his love for us. God loves us, and his love will never cease. And even in... Our sinfulness, he loves us. Christ loved us before we loved him. In fact, our love for him comes out of his love for us. So that anybody who is in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, this is just the beginning of this life-giving story. And what we're going to do today is we're going to try to tie this together in a way that you can share this with others. And I hope what it does is it enlightens you and it helps you so that the New Testament comes alive in new ways and God does a whole new work in your heart. And perhaps if he does a new work in our hearts, then he will do a new work in other people's hearts through us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, let's stand together, friends, and let's close our time this morning with prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity this morning to just look together at the beginning of the story that we see in all the pages of Scripture that point ultimately to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that you sent to be our Savior, to give his life so that we might have life. We pray today for anybody who's here that's not yet come to the place of recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah and they've not yet received him as their Savior. And Lord, we pray that even today might be a day where they will step toward you, Father. We pray you would call them to yourself. They would hear your voice. They would know your love. They would, uh, they would willingly Give up their life for a new life in you. 
And, and if that's the desire of your heart, just tell God that this morning. He will hear that prayer. The Bible says, as many as receive Jesus Christ, to those who believe in his name, will be adopted into God's family. And if you've not yet become a member of his family through Christ, we invite you even this morning to receive him as your Savior and Lord. If you'd like to talk to one of us, we're here and we're available. And we'd love to be a help to you. And Lord, we pray that those of us who've come to this place where we right now are in your family because of what Jesus has done for us, may we never come to a place where we are not ready to learn more of what it is that you have for us, that we would willingly depend upon your changes in our hearts and, and experience this new life in ways that perhaps we've never experienced it before. And so we pray that even as you change the hearts of Nicodemus and this woman at the well, that you would continue to change our hearts and help us become the people that you want us to be, doing the things that you want us to do to your honor and to your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.